Yesterday I was at a family party and uh, there was a conversation that began and in this group there were some who were part of the Gen X generation, some who were part of the baby boomers, and some who were part of the silent generation, so mostly older people. And uh, we turned to, uh, the conversation turned to modern technology and our relationship with it. And as you saw, the people that grew up where color TV had not come out yet, and uh, they're, they're trying to figure out what to do with a smartphone. Um, that, that was kind of a funny part of the conversation. And, and we, you think about how people look at this relationship differently. Um, I overheard over to the side a group of millennials uh, speaking with pity and, uh, and long-suffering about how pathetic we are when it comes to technology. And, uh, and I just thought in this little room here, and my, by the way, my granddaughter at the time is on the floor writing a song to Jesus. And she's, she's sitting there playing on a xylophone and writing this song to Jesus. And I am looking at the dynamics of this generational difference that really, really very different cultures. The groups that I talked about are just trying to understand the cultural shifts that have happened in the last 70 years. And it's been remarkable, the cultural shifts that have happened in the last 70 years. This passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 17 answers the question that the good news is for everyone in all different cultures. And cultures are different not just across generations, not just a matter of time, but it's also a matter of distance. Where you grew up and what kind of home you grew up in and what your nationality of your parents was and and, and what your background is. I worked in the city for a long time, and I worked, I was trained in construction by a guy named Jose, helped him get his citizenship, was I'm studying his uh, constitution test that was coming up, and just loved getting to know him, watched his kids grow up, and then worked for me one day, and now I'm working for one of them in some ways. So it's kind of fascinating to me, the relationship change, and he was clearly Mexican, his kids are clearly American, and the cultural differences are remarkable. I worked with an African-American who was from the South and grew up at a time when you could not drink out of a, out of a water fountain uh, that was considered a white person's water fountain. And I tried to talk about Jesus with him, and the, the divide between white and black was something I wasn't used to growing up in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Cultural differences are remarkable. And if you're not aware of them, you can step on people's toes and you can hurt people without knowing it. A couple of great talks from Gather to Grow, um, from Dan and Dale, explaining a situation where you can learn about a cultural difference or a perspective difference that is kind of, you don't even think that way. You're not seeing it that way, and now you begin to understand because you care and you want to hear. The good news, the gospel is brought most effectively when we understand people in their culture and identify with them in their culture. The gospel was meant for all people. It wasn't just meant for Scandinavians that grew up in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. 
And when I went to the you know, city and went to school in the city, I was, had some culture shock. I began to see people differently. Well, today we're going to look at Paul entering a culture that he was offensive to and was offensive to him, and yet he preached the gospel. So Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, we're going to see that the good news is for everyone. The good news is for everyone. We're just going to read the verses 16 through 21 first and see that we can understand people and their culture. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenian and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We can understand people and their culture. And the first thing that I want you to see in this passage is other people's cultures can be offensive to us. And we can be offensive to other people without knowing it. And if we can just get that out in the, because our values are different, or our perspectives are different, our music is different, our dress is different. The ways that we think are different. The ways that we value things. I had a friend who worked for UPS, dear friend, my accountability partner, and he went to Spain to express the values of UPS in Spain. And it was a huge failure because Spain doesn't value the values of UPS, getting it there on time. They valued relationship. And without understanding the Spanish, and this is, a, this is a very broad statement because you can't discuss culture until you talk about individuals. But in general, Spaniards would rather be interested, they're more interested in relationship than what time a package arrives. And UPS is trying to convince them of an American perspective, which Spain has no interest in. It was an effort in futility and a misunderstanding of culture. The American culture that UPS was bringing to Spain was offensive. And UPS was, the people in UPS were offended. We're just trying to get your packages there. We can understand people and their culture. In verse 16, as this opens, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he's waiting for those who he left as he fled Berea, and came to Athens, he's now here looking around in the city and, and teaching and reasoning. But while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, I don't want to downplay the word provoked here. He's maybe angry. He's appalled. This is an issue of the second commandment. 
In Exodus 20, verse 4, if you were to flip there, and even the verses beyond, and you don't need to now, you can write it down, but as God is giving the second commandment, he's saying, have no idols. Make no idols. Don't make them with human hands, and don't bow down to them and worship them. And attached to that are the promises that I will visit with wrath on the generations your unrighteousness, but your blessings onto many generations. So this particular commandment comes with this exclamation point from God, don't make idols. And he's looking around at this culture, and in Athens, everywhere you went were gods. Temples to different gods, and people prostrating themselves before gods, and doing things before gods that would have been offensive for a Jew, for someone who grew up in in a time and a place that valued monotheism, believed in monotheism, just... And he's provoked. So he's going home and praying, and he's angry. He's frustrated. And I'm confident that all of us in this generation, all of us have watched the TV and seen things that are happening, and we felt the same way. We felt provoked. We felt angry. We don't understand. The older I get, the less I understand. Because I'm further, further away from a culture that some are dragging me into, trying to get me to play video games, and I'm trying. I'm just pathetic. I was before Atari. There was no video games when I grew up. Computers had just started. And coding in computers, I mean, I just, the world that is now was not the world I grew up in. If kids wanted to play with each other, they had to go outside. They couldn't, I mean, there was one funny moment. I went to a a friend of mine I I was witnessing to. I went over to his house, and we ate dinner together with a family, and his sons were sitting there. No one's talking. They're on their phones. And and the the boys left right after dinner, and he says, come follow me. And we went into the office, and their family time was each of them went to their bedrooms, got got on their computers, their video games, and could talk to each other through the video game, and they're playing with the neighbors next door at the same time. They were doing a war game, and they were all together. Isn't this cool? And I'm like, this is weird. What happened to kick the can and ghost to the graveyard? When I was growing up, you could get a pickup game of baseball. Everybody was outside. Now you can't get a pickup game of horse outside. I talk about that almost derisively, don't I? Don't you know that every generation has changed? That in the 1800s, they would speak derisively of those crazy kids in the 1900s? Do you know what they're doing? Oh, and they're listening to the radio in the 30s. (gasps) What is that box from Satan? The world is constantly changing and culture constantly changed, but the good news does not change, and we're going to see that. Paul was provoked, but that didn't mean that Paul stopped because he knew the heart of God and he knew what his mission was and he knew why he was there. So in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be there. That means he applied himself 
to bring the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we're going to see defined more clearly in this passage than we have in the past. He aspires to bring this in the synagogue, which would have been a different message than what we're going to see later on when he's just before on the Oropagus defending the gospel. So he goes into the synagogue, he goes out into the streets, and when he's out on the streets, whoever he can pick up the conversation with, and we find in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? So there's a couple things I want you to know. It's not so important that you understand Epicurean and Stoic philosophies, but Epicurean and Stoic philosophies were very humanistic. Epicurean was believed in, in, in us having as much pleasure in life as possible. And the idea wasn't that they were hedonists in the sense that you get out and you eat, drink, and be merry. It was actually don't get connected with those kinds of things as much as possible. Stay steady because those will let you down. Epicureans would say don't get married because that will let you down. It was all about not getting hurt. Where the Stoics believed that getting hurt was almost a rite of passage in a way, and they had an idea that you just needed to stand firm and not the best Stoics would not be moved one way or the other. If they're dealing with difficulties, and Stoic, a Stoic person is still around today because of this philosophy that was going. But in both cases, they did not see God as intimately involved in their lives. This, from a Stoic perspective, God was everything and everywhere. From an Epicurean perspective, there was no afterlife. You live as well as you can now and in fact, I have a quote from the Epic, from a Epicurean. This is what they would say. I was not, I have been, I am not, and I do not mind. Dirt to dirt, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And they're standing there listening to Paul, and Paul is explaining that Jesus is risen from the dead. And culturally speaking, there's not a context for this. They don't know the Old Testament. They're not confident in this view that Paul was raised in. Paul was raised with the idea that there would be a Messiah. There is no talk coming when he gives his sermon about the Messiah. But he's still going to speak the truth. We have seen a major shift in our uh, North American society from modern to postmodern. Major shift meaning we were in modernity for centuries. And within my lifetime, I was born in a modern era, and in my lifetime it shifted to a postmodern. Distrust of modernity. Distrust that we can know. Distrust that anyone can say there's truth. And when it started to happen, I remember being in church, people saying, that's crazy, that's stupid. Just tell them it's stupid which wasn't going to reach anyone. Actually understanding and valuing some of the differences has opened doors for discussion. Well, he's preaching in front of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, 
And they say, what does this babbler wish to say? The actual Greek word there says scavenger. What is a scavenger? And the picture is that he is an ignoramus who is going around and picking up little pieces of truth, and now he's going to play with the big boys. The picture is very condescending as they look at Paul talking about the resurrection of Jesus, that he doesn't even know how Greeks, who are by far and away the wisest people on the planet, our culture is the best, that was their perspective, and their culture has a lot of cool things about it. But they looked down on Paul and were, were judging Paul and saying, Paul doesn't even know how to communicate with us. Come along, son. Let us show you truth. We've been battling the issue of truth for 300 years. We've got Socrates, we've got Plato, we've got Aristotle. Come on, who's this Jesus? So they call him a babbler or a scavenger, an ignoramus, an unlearned one who just picks up pieces of truth and doesn't know what to do them with them. Others say he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the divinities there is plural, and in Greek uh, culture at that time, the gods that they had, there were a multitude of gods, thousands of gods that they worshipped, and temples to many gods. And the gods sometimes were people, and sometimes they were personifications, the god of wisdom, the god of love. So the perspective here is they're saying he's preaching about this Jesus who is a God and the resurrection, which is the, a God from their perspective. Deities, the God of resurrection, just like the God of wisdom. So he's preaching these divinities. In verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. This is a, uh, seems like a very kind and courteous invitation. But I want you to know that that's not the case. Josephus wrote about what the Areopagus was like, and he wrote in the first century, Josephus wrote that the Athenians severely punished those who led others to follow foreign deities, and the penalty for introducing a foreign god without approval was death. So we see this, and they're like, yeah, come tell us your position. But in this spot where he's, they're, being inv- they're taking him, it's not an invitation in the beginning. The invitation is that for you to explain yourself. But these verbs, they took him and brought him, are directive. He's not under arrest yet, but Paul's not dumb. This is a scary moment. It's a scary moment to preach the gospel to people who are offended by you and your culture and your history and your perspective. The Areopagus was the best home court advantage you can imagine. It was a large stone hill below the Acropolis, below the Pantheon, temples, art, architecture, and gods that are large looking down on Paul as he tries to talk about Jesus and the resurrection. (coughs) 
may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. In verse 20, for you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. In verse 21, we hear the last statement of the culture that Paul is preaching in. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It's an interesting job, isn't it? Back when philosophy was king, and you could sit around, and Socrates actually, the Socratic method, talking through things, and they valued that. That was their culture, to sit around and talk about things and, and look at it from different sides and discover wisdom and pick a side and argue your position. That was the culture. And why is that parenthesis given at the end of this passage? That parenthesis is given because Luke wants us to know, or Paul wants us to know through Luke, or God wants us to know that this is the culture that God wants to reach. What would be the parenthesis for our culture? Well, our culture is going to be different with as many people as there are in this room. We all have a vast difference in how we were raised and our background and our values and our perspectives. Values are changing dramatically. When I was raised, the value of work was really high. How you work defined you as a man. That isn't true anymore. That's not the value anymore. We can lament that or cry about it or we could actually talk about the flaws with that that we get our value from our work. I'm just telling you that even in this room, the cultures are dramatically different, but God's love is extending to every person on the planet. And the gospel is supposed to break through the barriers of culture. And we're going to see Paul do model for us what is our job, which is to bring the gospel across culture. We can understand people and their culture. It's going to require some humility, and it's going to require the love of Christ. We have to actually see people and love them and listen to them. Paul walked around the community and looked, and he saw, and he cared, and he prayed. We should preach Christ to people in their culture. Now, this is hard. You have to really understand the gospel and what we don't move on to understand what we can let go to make culturally relevant to the next group. And this requires love and perspective. And I'm going to preach this point, but I admit that John and Anna should be up here preaching this point, not me, because I have my vast experience in preaching cross-culturally is far smaller than theirs but God called me to preach, so here I am. We should preach Christ to people in their culture. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is a man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We should preach Christ to people in their culture. Paul begins not by saying, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are odious to me. I find your culture offensive, and I believe it offends the living God. That's not how he starts. He actually finds points of connection. As I studied Epicurean and, and Stoic philosophies, I found points of connection. I don't have time to talk about that, but what are the points of connection from generation to generation? So that we can speak to each other and express the value of the gospel. He begins with a positive. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Is that true? Yes, that's true. Is it misplaced from Paul's perspective, from God's perspective? Absolutely. From scriptural perspective, their religiosity is misplaced. But he begins by finding agreement and finding value. And he even goes on to say, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So he's walking around and he's looking at the inscriptions on the different idols. He's looking at what, how people are worshiping. He's watching it and he's looking for an opening. I, I think of Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. He's in prison and this is what he says to his friends that he's writing to. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on, which, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I picture Paul walking around Athens and on the streets, and as he looks at the gods, he's talking to his God. He's talking to Yahweh. He's talking to Christ and asking the Holy Spirit to open a door. Show me how I can make a difference and show them your love. I know that you love these people like you loved me. I know that they offend you like I offend you. And yet you cross-culture, the greatest cross-cultural minister was Jesus Christ himself who came and dwelt among us and lived in our mess that he didn't own, that he wasn't part of, and he lived in our mess and loved us. Every day he could have gotten up and judged Every day he could have gotten up and told you, you guys are awful. 
Do you have any idea how offensive you are to the living God? And every day he got up and he built bridges and opened doors and found ways to teach people about a God who loves them. And then he went to the cross. Cross-cultural ministry has everything to do with following Christ and preaching Christ. He's the one who modeled it first. So Paul is walking around Athens, and I think he's praying for open doors, and God shows him this idol to an unknown God. And this is what he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. It's kind of a masterful move. He's saying, in one hand, you're going to judge me if I'm bringing in a new God. I'm not. You have an unknown God. I'm just declaring who he is. So that makes it harder to judge him. It's a politically wise move, maybe. But more importantly, what he's saying, and I think his real point, is that this isn't a new God. He's just unknown to you. This is the God who was always and will ever be our creator and the God who is sovereignly over all that we have. And he's going to go on to preach that. But his entrance, the bridge that he uses, is the very idol that they use to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Would this have worked in the synagogue? Absolutely not. Would this work with your neighbor? I don't know your neighbor. Have you asked God to open doors? I proclaim to you not a new God, but an unknown God. Verse 24, he now begins to say things that would be offensive to them and their position. He, in essence, is about to describe the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Scriptures. And how does he know this is true? Because of the Scriptures. Just like Andy read earlier in the service about According to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, God has revealed himself in his word and ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ, and his plan for saving the world was accomplished through Jesus. And he is going to describe that now as he stands on the Oropagus, on this stone hill, being judged by those who are in authority in Athens. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Here he is in the shadow of temples where people are busy serving God. Maybe they've been serving their gods for their whole lives, and he's declaring that's futile. That's not God. That's not the answer. There is a God who created everything. By the way, right now, he's offended both the Epicureans and the Stoics. But he will offend for the gospel. Cross-cultural ministry doesn't mean you amend the gospel to be palatable to another culture. You don't amend the gospel ever because that's what saves. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And God is reaching across cultures and we cannot afford to not offend for the right reasons. Today, it would be far better if we preached a gospel that said, this is one of the ways to get to heaven. But that's not what God said. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And if that's true, which I preach and believe and know that it's true in my heart, then how can I preach any other than that and call it love? He speaks of a singular God. He speaks of a creator God who is Lord. He's not in temples. He doesn't need human efforts. He goes on to talk about all of us descended from Adam, that we are created by God. In verse 26, and he made one man, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God is the one who placed us in our spots and he gave us life and he gave us breath and we have one father who is God who came from Adam. This is a unifying moment. The Jews might think, well, God likes us more, but Paul is saying here, no, we all come from the same story. And that story is a creator God who created all of us and everyone has value. And if you're, for those of you who are Christians, I want you to know that cross-cultural ministry is our job. Cross-cultural church is our job. And that means across generation to generation, and that means across neighborhoods, and that means across states, and that means across countries. Our job is to bring the gospel. But at a minimum, what I want you to know is that God loves you. And that God is not qualified one group is more savable than another group. He wants us all. So without a political comment right now, absolutely black lives matter, and absolutely Hispanic lives matter, and absolutely Scandinavian. I mean, just keep going. Who, who doesn't matter to God? Please show them to me. Because the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So he's preaching this boldly. In verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. He actually tells them that God is on mission to reach them. I'm just his advocate. And God has come for you, and God is reachable for you, and if you turn to him, he wants to be found. This God is personal. It's not abstract thought. This is a personal God who loves people who offend us, maybe. yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. I love that he's now quoting their poets. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now it gets even more serious. Paul is in a weak position at this point unless he's speaking with the authority of God. And he speaks with authority. 
The time of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's telling them to repent of the worship that they've been doing. He's telling them to turn from gods who aren't alive and turn to the one true God who is coming for them. He's risking his life as he says this, but he knows that's what he's been called to bring, and he knows that God loves these people, and he's pleading with them. Turn. Turn from hollow religiosity and turn to a living God who loves you in Christ Jesus. In verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is a day coming when all of the world will be judged and everyone will stand before and this doesn't preach today. You're not supposed to preach this stuff, right? This culture is offended by hearing that God will judge. Unless God's going to judge. In which case, how can we not preach it? How can we not warn that there is a day that is appointed that all men will stand before? And it, it, the, the, the determination is by the righteousness of a man who was appointed. That man is Jesus Christ. And of this he has given the assurance to all by raising him from the dead. As surely as Jesus was raised from the dead, is as sure as we know that the day is coming, we will stand before him in judgment. Paul isn't worried about his own life. He's worried about their lives. He is, God has answered his prayer to love the people that he's been called to. God, help me to reach them Open doors, give me words, give me grace, and let me tell them. The time for apologizing for the gospel should be over. You don't need to be embarrassed that Jesus said is the only way. He earned the right. He's the only way. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And if that's true, then telling people, hey, whatever, dude, might be nice today, but it's not really kind. Hey, the bridge is out, but keep driving if you want to. We should preach Christ to people in their culture. We must build the church with people in their culture. Verses 32 through 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. You think that hurt Paul? I'm guessing, yeah. I'm guessing that's no fun. What is that guy? We told you he was a babbler. Wah, 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 wah. Look at him. Come back when you grow up a little. And they looked at him derisively and mocked him. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Others were saying, all right, I want to hear more. Paul's praying for how many of them, do you think? 
All of them. I mean, this is the guy that was leading people to Christ who was chained to. He believed the gospel was for everyone and that as long as he was here, his job was to bring the gospel and save as many as he could. Verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius the Areopagite. There's actually somebody that's sitting on the council in judgment of Paul, and he becomes a Christian that day and joins the church. And a woman named Damaris also was with them. And my point here is we must build the church with people in their culture means that the culture of the church has to be multicultural. We have to have a church that crosses generations. That's why having the elderly in our church is so precious to us and having children in our church is so precious to us and people from different backgrounds. It's a melting pot, but it's beautiful because God knits us together and breaks down the barriers that would otherwise keep us from being in community. But when we come together in the gospel, all of those things are broken away. The things that would divide don't under the gospel. In Ephesians 2, 13 and 14, Paul is writing about building a church with now Greek people among Jewish people, which we don't understand the conflict there. Hatred's the right word. Mistrust would be a softer word, but hatred's. And here he says in Ephesians 2, 13 and 14, but now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. When I say that we must build the church with people in their culture, it means there needs to be room for people in their culture to be part of our community. But I want you to know that it's not our job to make peace with that. It's not human efforts. It's what God's doing in the gospel that he miraculously breaks down barriers and we love each other and can listen to each other and see each other. I have traveled, um, had the privilege of traveling to South America and worshiping in South America, in Brazil, in Bogota. I've had the privilege of worshiping in Africa, in Kenya and in Zambia. In Zambia. I've had the privilege of worshiping in Costa Rica. And the cultural differences can be comical. When I was in Zambia, they asked me to, to teach on marriage. And I'm looking at my vast understanding of Zambian marriage, which is zero, and looking at the illustrations that I have of marriage, and it became all too apparent at the end of my talk, which went twice as long because I didn't know you had to go half as long when you have a translator. So I'm now, you know, the big joke in Zambia is I go back there, the guy who can't land a plane. Because I'm up there and you think he's landing, and here he goes again. So it was supposed to be 40 minutes, and I prepared 40 minutes. Not a good plan when you have a translator. The kid can learn, I hope. I'm going back to preach again. But as I listened to the questions and what they were struggling with in their marriages, 
by the power of God, God works, but I was just a kid that needed to listen. I didn't understand their struggles. I didn't understand culturally the things that they were wrestling with. And yet, the power of God's word and the power of the gospel spans cultures. And I don't need to be anxious. I just need to preach the word of God. And you don't need to be anxious. You just need to preach the word of God. I want to close by taking you back to that family party with the adults talking, the older group over here and the little bit younger group, and we're talking about technology. And there's my granddaughter, my five-year-old granddaughter, who, by the way, I feel called to disciple. I don't even know what that means. I don't know if I have a chance, but I feel like it's my job to try. And she's on the ground by herself playing the xylophone. And, and I get out on the ground with her and become part of what she's doing. Cross-cultural ministry. Just join them. Who did God call you to reach? Don't expect them to come to you in your culture and make you feel comfortable. The older I get, the more uncomfortable it is for me to get on the ground and hop right back up and play. But I think everyone here has been called, that is a believer in Jesus Christ has been called to cross-cultural ministry. Why? Because the good news is for everyone and God loves all of them. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending a Jew like Paul, a Pharisee like Paul, who was offended by the Gentiles like us. And yet, you called him to reach us. Called him to reach that generation of Gentiles. So much so that he was titled the Apostle to the Gentiles. Father, I pray that you would help us to put aside our prejudices and our cultural offenses and see people like you see them. I pray that you would open doors for us to preach the gospel one generation to the next. In Jesus' name, amen.